It's the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. More than a year since the start of an analysis of the city of Pittsburgh's police staffing and deployment of officers, the results have been released. And this assessment finds that, quote, 188 fewer budgeted officer positions are needed in patrol. WESA City Government reporter Kylie Kaczynski covered the announcement of these results and joins us now. Welcome back, Kylie. Hello, Kevin. Mayor Ed Ganey unveiled this long-awaited report yesterday. This is just a document that we have that puts us in the direction to get us to where we want to go. In regards to this, a lot of what we'll take is from the chief of police. The reason why we waited before we released this is because we wanted a chief of police that was on board that can interpret it and digest it and be able to talk about which direction and where he thinks there's truth that we can move in that direction. And that's what Chief Scarado has done. All right, Kylie, how many officers is the city currently budgeted for and how many are staffing the jobs? Yeah, so the city budgets for a force of 900, but according to the police union, there are currently 787 officers. They credit that decrease to a high number of retirement eligible officers and uh, those leaving the force um, for borough jobs that tend to pay more. Mm -hmm. Uh, What has been the Fraternal Order of Police's uh, take on staffing as this assessment was proceeding? I spoke with FOP President Bob Swartzwelder yesterday, and he says the study's findings conflict with the data he's been collecting, and he disagrees that the force could stand to eliminate any patrol officers. Well, why is everybody being held over double and triple shifts? Why did I just have 22 officers forced into double shift overtime in the last 24 hours, if that statement is true? So he says either the study is invalid or the police bureau is severely mismanaging its resources. So the question now is, the analysis actually started when the police force was larger than it currently is. You just mentioned that right now it's about 787. Uh, Did this assessment take into consideration that decrease? Not necessarily. Most of this data is actually from 2021, uh, so it's not even just the decrease in the last year. It would account for some of 2021 as well. None of those concerns were shared by city officials yesterday. Uh, They did say that some of the delay for releasing the report was them working with Matrix to include some 2022 data to account for different call volumes and things like that. But the the ever-changing size of the force was not necessarily something that the study took into account. Let's talk a bit about the uh, the shifting of officers, uh, the recommendation that officers be taken off patrol, but not necessarily eliminating patrol officers, but reassigning them. Right. So they recommend assigning them to other departments like investigative units or expanding a community resource uh, officer division. Mm-hmm. At the time of this study, there were 26 vacant uh, patrol positions. Uh, So does this study say don't fill them, let them go, or what? The study said that uh, quality of service wouldn't be diminished if those positions were eliminated, um, but it doesn't necessarily say you must eliminate those positions. It's a suggestion that that could be a possibility the city takes. All right. Now, we heard from the FOP president just a moment or so ago. They had their concerns leading up to it and during the process of this assessment. After hearing it, I assume they've seen or have they seen the full report? Yes, they have. Okay. Um, 
But beyond the disagreement about staffing, the FOP said yesterday that some of the study's findings conflict with each other. Swartzwilder pointed to a section that covers how the city uses police to staff major events. It's missing some key events like the St. Patrick's Day Parade, which require a number of officers in Picklesburg, which is coming up this weekend. The study suggests uh, a review about how officer mental health is impacted by excessive work hours. And Swartzwilder says the city wouldn't be able to do much about excessive work hours with the current framework for event coverage and how officers have been required to work overtime. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to a little bit more on the overtime. We heard um, Sorcerer talk about overtime before. Does this study, this analysis, get into the use of overtime or not? It does a bit, and uh, Scarado spoke a bit about overtime yesterday at the press conference uh, about the study, and he had said that some of that could be resolved by a restructuring and um, of patrol units and figuring out where we need more officers and where we might be able to stand with fewer. Okay. Kylie, at the beginning of our conversation, we heard a clip of Mayor Ganey saying he wanted to wait until a new chief was on board and had a chance to review it. So uh, did Chief Scarado speak at this press briefing? And what did he have to say? If so, what did he have to say about this uh, study? Yeah, naturally he did. Um, He was careful to note that he doesn't agree with all of the study's findings. Uh, He pledged to stay committed to the 900 officer count set in the city budget, and he pointed to two recruit classes scheduled this year as evidence of that commitment. One of those classes is scheduled to start Monday. And do you know the number of um, recruits in such a class? There are 30 scheduled to start in the class. It's not clear if all 30 will make it to the end. Right. Uh, But still, that would put us no closer, well, not that much closer to 900 budgeted for. The police union would say it's a drop in the bucket. Okay. So did the union respond to the idea that Scarado is committed to that 900 figure? Did they have any uh, sense of reaction there? Swartzwelder said that uh, if the city is committed to the 900 number, despite some of the recommendations in the study, he doesn't necessarily see the purpose for the study. All right. Are any changes... Are any of these changes, these happen strictly within the Bureau, strictly within the Ganey administration. Does anyone else have to sign off on changes? Not necessarily on personnel matters. City Council has made attempts to change some police policies, but implementing them is in the control of the mayor and the police chief, as we've seen with the minor traffic stop bill and the Bureau's decision not to follow that earlier this year. Uh, A lot of other things are controlled by the bargaining agreement settled on by the mayor's office and the police union. All right, finally... So when might we expect implementation of any changes, such as the shifting of some patrol officers to other duties? City officials didn't set a timeline for implementing changes, but Chief Scarato said he's exploring a restructuring informed in part by the study and in part from his own expertise, and that we can expect to notice some of that relatively soon. WESA reporter Kylie Kaczynski covers city government. Thanks for your reporting and for joining us. Thanks, Kevin. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. In June 2012, Jerry Sandusky was convicted on 45 counts of child sexual abuse while he was an assistant football coach at Penn State. He was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in prison. School president Graham Spanier 
Vice President Gary Schultz and Athletic Director Tim Curley were charged with perjury, obstruction of justice, and failure to report suspected child abuse. An independent report by former FBI Director Louis Free found that former head coach Joe Paterno, along with Spanier, Curley, and Schultz, had shown total disregard for the safety and welfare of the child victims. Spanier resigned. Paterno and Curley were fired. Shortly thereafter, Penn State overhauled its ethics and misconduct reporting policies. Spotlight PA investigative reporter Wyatt Massey has been exploring if the changes have worked. Wyatt, welcome to The Confluence. Hi, thank you for having me. All right, following the Sandusky scandal, Penn State rolled out a vocal commitment to ethics and attitude against misconduct. What measures did they put in place at that time? Yeah, in the, in the years that followed the immediate scandal, the university implemented a series of reforms, um, some with internal policies or emphasizing policies, specifically anti-retaliation policies if someone spoke up. They also created kind of a series of offices to oversee compliance. Uh, you might call it risk management, internal accountability at the university. Um, and these would be offices that would handle uh, reports of misconduct and investigate and kind of make decisions about things that maybe wouldn't rise to the level of immediate criminality, but could be abusive behavior by bosses, misconduct, things like that. Mm -hmm. And a big centerpiece of that was the Office of Ethics and Compliance. That office was created in 2013 and was really supposed to be a central hub of this type of work. Um, it was created to be somewhat independent from the university administration and answer directly to the board of trustees. Uh, is it possible to know to what extent this Office of Ethics has indeed investigated, followed up on reports of misconduct? It's very difficult for us to know. Um, the, the office we are told by the university does gather data that is presented to the board of trustees, but that data is presented uh, behind closed doors. We don't necessarily know the nature of it or any of the, the data that it does present, um, which is uh, somewhat dissimilar from what other universities do. Our reporting had looked at places like Virginia Commonwealth University, which makes these types of reports public for people to see. Are they, Virginia Commonwealth, for example, is that a similar sort of situation as Penn State? Penn State is a state-related university, but not a state-owned university. Yeah, uh, Penn State does have the special kind of status as a state-related uh, with Temple University, Pitt, and Lincoln, um, which gives it a lot more independence um, than being under the state's open records law or getting pressure from the General Assembly, for example. Mm -hmm. Why you interviewed John Champagne, I believe his name is, an English professor at Penn State Barrand. What was his experience with the Office of Sexual Misconduct Prevention and Response? Yeah, in the fall of 2021, John Champagne uh, had come across the poster uh, advertising an event on campus that was, um, the event was called Pray the Gay Away. Um, and what he did, um, having been a professor at the university for 30 years, he had gone through many compliance trainings, a lot of those trainings similar to the see something, say something genre. He had filed a report uh, with the Office of Sexual Misconduct or Office of Sexual Misconduct Prevention and Response, um, basically noting that this poster and the event was creating a hostile work environment. He told us he kind of just wanted to flag it for the administration. Um, not expecting uh, a big response, but he got silence. Mm -hmm. He sent follow-up emails to the office. He tried to contact the president. 
and uh, went uh, months and months without getting any kind of a response. And basically took a year and a half um, for the university to follow up and even say, oh, we're sorry that this report might have fallen through the cracks. This wasn't supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other people had very specific complaints against the person leading the Office of Ethics and Compliance. What happened there? Yeah, uh, we looked at the Office of Ethics and Compliance and its chief ethics officer over a two-year period from late 2018 to early 2020. Um, And there was repeated reports of allegations of misconduct, retaliation by that chief ethics officer within the office. Um, And people were very concerned and tried to raise uh, concerns through the official channels. But of course, those reports were going to the very office uh, that the chief ethics officer was leading. Um, And we found that the, the unit really struggled to handle those complaints about the exact office. Um, and people were also reaching out to then President Eric Barron and the Board of Trustees, asking them to do something because things were getting so bad within the ethics office. Finally, Wyatt, from what you have learned, do people believe that Penn State has lived up to its promise? Well, yeah, we have seen that the university has commissioned surveys um, and found uh, pretty bad results in terms of what people think about the university in these systems. Um, The most recent survey that they did, uh, it found that 44% of faculty and 42% of staff believe that Penn State does not retaliate against people who report wrongdoing. Um, It's it's kind of a backwards way of saying it, uh, but that's the way the question was asked. So less than half of people believe that if you report misconduct, the university or the administration will not retaliate against you for speaking up. Spotlight PA investigative reporter Wyatt Massey, thanks for your reporting and for joining us today. Thank you. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. In 1983, the Junior League of Pittsburgh opened up what we now know as the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. The museum still sits on the same site, the old post office building on the north side, but it's grown quite a bit in 40 years. Jane Werner is executive director at the Children's Museum. Welcome, Jane. Thanks, Kevin. It's nice to be here. So 40 years, in a sense, does it feel like the Children's Museum has grown up? (laughs) Yeah, it's just like children. You you blink and and suddenly they're an adult. Uh, I kind of think that the Children's Museum, the same thing has happened here. It doesn't seem that long ago, but at the same time, you know, we've done quite a bit in those 40 years. When the museum opened uh, with less than 5,000 square feet of exhibits in the basement, the old post office building in the north side, I know you weren't there yet, but do you know what were some of those first exhibits? Well, there were so many things that um, we no longer have. There was the tooth booth. Uh, there was a area called... Um, it was all about people with disabilities, and that was a really uh, exciting thing. There was Al Pete's Meats, which was like a riverfront, and you would have grain sacks that would go back and forth between a boat and the Al Pete's Meats, and it was just kind of this old-timey store. Um, but I think the classics that everybody remembers, uh, Stuffy, who was uh, at the time our eight-foot mascot, um, who would open up and show you his inside, so you would learn about um, body parts and nutrition. Then we uh, had a, another uh, 
exhibit that actually still exists and in one form or another. It's a limb bender, which uh, is the crawling um, piece that we have actually in the new museum as well. So that actually, those were the original exhibits. Well, the footprint, you mentioned the new museum. So the footprint of the space has grown, started, as we said, at the old post office and linked up with the Buell building. Are there plans in the works, or at least up here, in your thought processes of continuing to grow? I think you always have to continue to grow. So, yeah, but it may not be physical space. From 1983 to 2004, we went from 5,000 to 80,000 square feet. And since then, you know, we've been doing kind of block-by-block development. Um, including the park in front of the museum. And then we actually helped with the Hazlet Theater redo. And um, finally, in 2019, we opened the uh, museum lab in the old Carnegie Library. And now I think what we're really concentrating on is how do you actually take what we do here and actually push it out to communities and also think about our role in education. Jane, has the age range of your target audience, your intended visitors, expanded through the years? And uh, did the museum lab do that? Yeah, actually, that, that that's one of the goals of museum lab is to really look at middle school and older kids. Um, you know, since I've started my career, which is a long time ago, um, kind of childhood has been pressed down. So kids are getting older faster, not age-wise, but as far as their development. So we're starting to look at really thinking about the 10-year-old and up um, and really trying to make sure that developmentally um, we are providing activities that kind of meet their needs. Um, So Museum Lab is actually all about the middle schooler. And we actually have a charter middle school, Manchester Academic Charter School is in that building. So we, along with the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon, are really looking at activities for that age group that actually can transfer between. Because, you know, in in some ways, schools aren't quite working right these days. And what we're trying to do is say, maybe we should do project-based learning a little bit better. How can the museum do the experiments that schools can't? No one ever fails a museum, right? So that's kind of what we're looking at. We're looking at museum lab being a space for experimentation and education. Mm -hmm. Jane, you mentioned uh, the kids are moving through development stages so fast, growing up faster, if you would. And let's face it, the world has changed a lot in 40 years. So how do you stay relevant? Oh, I think we we try to stay relevant by talking to kids and families all the time to see, you know, what's happening. We do a lot with our partners. We actually are unusual in that we have a number of partners that rent space from us. Um, So, you know, Reading is Fundamental is here and Allies for Children and the University of Pittsburgh and and Carnegie Mellon. And then, of course, our two schools, we have um, both Max, Manchester Academic Charter, and then we also have Pittsburgh Public Schools, um, the two Head Start programs, pre-K programs. And, you know, actually having partners and having kind of research allies and really just being around kids, I think keeps us very relevant. You know, they are they are facing a host of issues that um, I sure didn't face and I even my kids didn't face. I mean, it is a whole new world. And um, but, you know, fundamentally, it's really great. I mean, what is really still the same is that it's 
curiosity, creativity, kindness, and joy that really are at the heart of kids. Your mission statement includes, quote, our vision is to transform education. How so? Is it uh, done with these partnerships that you alluded to? Yeah, partnerships. And then we actually um, have a program. This is, you know, it's a big lofty, you know, vision. Um, and I think that it it comes from the fact that we actually have done a little bit of this work. Um, our makerspace, um, when we first started it, we were kind of early into the maker culture. And we did a lot of research into how kids learned in that space. And, you know, it became a national model. And we were able to put, we're up to about 350 maker spaces in schools and in hospitals across the United States and do the professional training with teachers. So when you go into these schools or these hospital settings or after school programs, you will see a space that the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh designed and that was specific for that program. And then you will see teachers who are totally engaged in it. So, you know, we feel like, okay, we're, we're, we're making a national impact on the maker stage. Can we do more experiments? And in fact, it has happened. Um, we are actually the Ermine Crest Elementary School. It was designed with by Canon Design and the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. So schools are becoming more like children's museums because of the research that's happening here. Finally, Jane, you have a series of celebrations this year. What do you hope to be celebrating in, say, another five years? I hope to be celebrating really the growth of our work in the community and to really be um, excited about fulfilling our vision and uh, creating more experiences for families and children to be creative, to be curious, to be kind, and, you know, to have a really joyful experience. Somehow I think joy has become underrated in our society. And I, and I think, you know, when you learn something, it's a really joyful experience um, for the most part. So, you know, we're, we're excited to keep going with our mission. Jane Werner is executive director at the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh, which is celebrating its 40th birthday. Congratulations, Jane, and thanks for being with us. Thanks. It's been a wonderful journey with a great group of people. And for today, that is the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. Next time, another week, another week without a state budget. A dark money group has pressured state lawmakers to approve school vouchers. It's our state politics roundtable tomorrow on The Confluence. Thanks to our team, Addison Deal, Laura Satsui, and Mary Lee Williams. I'm Kevin Gavin. Until next time, hope you have a good day of good news.